Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating, interesting, and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So, come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas, and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And... Don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the Wisdom of. Coming up today, Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition. Hey, hey everyone. I hope you're all doing uh, well. So to let you in on something behind closed doors, your wisdom of hosts are currently in the middle of writing and rewriting a script for a potential pilot episode that we've been working on for quite a while now. And it's exciting, but it's been pretty time consuming. So my co-host won't be joining us today, but he will be back uh, next week. In the meantime, it's just you and I. Okay, well, so today I thought I'd talk a bit about one of the more important political philosophers of the 20th century, Hannah Arendt. And most of what I say I'll be drawing from one of her seminal works called The Human Condition. Okay, well, so uh, where do I begin? Well, okay, I know. So imagine going back to the time of the ancient Greeks, And imagine you're watching a tragedy being performed in one of their big amphitheaters. Now, imagine the natural backdrop against which the play is set. So, you're watching a a play by Sophocles, say, and behind and all around the open-air stage is the grandeur of the natural world. Now, you'd probably get a real sense of the puniness and the transience of human beings in this context, right? I mean, here's this little finite drama being performed, but against an eternal background, this immense natural world. For the ancient Greeks, a world populated and ruled over by immortal gods, of course. Anyway, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that nature, divine or not, is just way bigger than us. The sun and the sea were here long before we arrived, and they'll be here long after we're gone completely heedless of our deaths. Nature is entirely indifferent to our concerns. It doesn't care about us while we're around. It has no interest in accommodating our needs. In comparison to this larger natural world, we're fragile and, well, just insignificant little things. As uh, Sophocles says, we just can't sidestep this larger world and its gods, 
no matter how strong we are. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the bottom line here is that for the ancient Greeks, we are mortals living in an immortal world. Now, this is interesting because this wasn't really the view of the later Christian tradition. No, it's the opposite. According to the Christian view, we're immortals living in a mortal world. Okay, well, so essentially Arendt took the side of the ancient Greeks on this one. For her, we are mortals living in an immortal world, not immortals living in a mortal world. Okay, now why is that significant? Well, this takes us to her very important notion of the vita activa, or the active life. But before I get into that in some detail, maybe I should give a bit of context here. So, Arendt thinks that historically, we've given a bit too much attention to the vita contemplavita, or the contemplative life, and we've ignored the importance and the complexity of the active life. And uh, Aristotle, say, is one good example of someone who believed that pure thinking, you know, the, the theoretical life, was the highest and the best kind of human existence. Well, again, in her book called The Human Condition, Arendt instead focuses on the active life and tries to show just how important it is, especially when it comes to really humanizing us. Okay, so now let's get a bit more specific. So what Arendt does is she breaks down the active life into, well, three human functions or three forms of activity. The first one she calls labor. The second one she calls work. And the last one she calls action. Now, these are all key to understanding her thinking. So let's try to take them one by one. Okay, so first, labor. Now, what does she mean by this? Well, this is basically our response to our tenuous place in this large, threatening, ever-changing natural world that we find ourselves in. In other words, nature's cycles and rhythms will quickly destroy us unless we try to protect ourselves from it and find ways to sustain ourselves, you know, to meet our biological needs. So, we have to do our best to intervene in nature in order to survive from day to day. Now, here's the thing. Notice something important. Namely, labor never ends. We have to keep doing the same thing over and over again, or we die. It's interminable. So, labor sustains our life, but it doesn't produce anything more stable beyond that. In a way, it's the life of an animal. And though it's necessary, it isn't the kind of thing that elevates our humanity. I mean, at some basic level, we're not even really free when all we're doing is spending our time trying to survive constantly bound to our biological requirements. Okay, so that's essentially labor. Now, what's the next distinction she makes? What's work? Well, work is when we manage to, some extent, stop being susceptible to the whims of nature by beginning to build something more permanent. In other words, we introduce some protective permanence into nature in a way much greater than simple labor can do. Remember that labor is cyclical, and it's repetitive, and it doesn't build on anything for the future. But work isn't like this. 
when we work, we go from, I don't know, a cleared out cave to a lean-to, to a house, and to a concrete or steel skyscraper. We build a wall instead of trimming the hedges every few days. All of a sudden, a more human world emerges, one reshaped with agriculture, paved roads, cities, and planes in the air. So, labor gets just enough on our plate each morning. But work gives us all of our durable accomplishments. It creates something more permanent and reliable. It gives us value beyond mere survival. And so ultimately, what work does is it gives us more security and so more freedom. Time is somewhat freed up and we can enjoy things long after our work is done. But notice one thing. It's not as if we are entirely free. I mean, work is still constrained by some necessity. Even in work, like in labor, we're still tied to demands. Okay, so the last concept. Actually, you know, you know what? Before I move on to Arendt's third important concept, action, I just want to quickly say something about this connection between work and labor in our own contemporary capitalistic world. You see, it seems pretty clear that what our rampant consumer capitalism often does is it takes work, as it's been defined, and then degrades or reduces it to labor. So, what do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is that capitalism prizes and encourages the disposable. We're persuaded that it's not only okay, but it's necessary to constantly throw away, say, our phones, and to upgrade to a new model. So, think about it. The work put into the phone, then, has been degraded to labor by making it something that no longer has any permanence. And this is precisely what capitalism requires. In order to keep the economy rolling, work has to be turned back into labor, permanence has to disintegrate into the disposable. And it seems to me that this is a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, for most of history, to throw things away that we've worked on would be a sign of, well, madness. A, a plate, say, would be treasured, and it would be used over and over again. But what do we have now? Well, single-use cups, single-use plates, single-use everything, even if it doesn't say it. This is an economics manically tilted in the favor of disposability. Anyway, so, so back to Arendt's third concept, that of action. So, what does she mean by this? Well, this is the highest level of activity that we can engage in. It's the highest form of the vita activa, and it's what labor and work has prepared the ground or the space for. So what it is, is it something like freedom in political and social action. More specifically, it involves the coming together in society, with others in an open, free speech realm, and without deception, discussing, and persuading, and challenging, and cooperating with them, with the end of carrying out political and social action, to try to do what's best for people, 
to try to work out how to reshape and improve our world. Actually, it's the kind of thing that Arendt imagined was happening in the polis during the rule of Pericles in democratic Athens. Actually, that's what she was inspired by when she talks about this. Now, an important part of the life of action is that, unlike labor and even work, it is fundamentally creative. It can actually initiate real change, real change in the structures of society. Action, through the social, can give birth to unfamiliar horizons and to new worlds. Now, this giving birth to newness together is what Arendt coined natality. The opposite, of course, of mortality. Ultimately, action is what makes freedom, individuality, and real transformation possible. And so it marks our fullest humanity. Okay, now, you know, since we're on the topic of action and open dialogue between people, I did want to mention one more connected and important idea that Arendt raises in this work, the the human condition. It's the idea of forgiveness. So what she says is that in the realm of action, people not only make all sorts of innocent mistakes— but they just don't have the capacity to foresee all of the consequences of their actions, some of which, of course, turn out to be wrong. Now, the problem is, is that if we don't forgive them, Arendt says, then they'll be forever haunted by that chain of consequences that was triggered by their initial action. They'll be stuck, unable to get back on their feet. So, what forgiveness does is it brings this chain to an end by constituting a new beginning. Forgiveness has the incredibly miraculous power to undo what has been done, to reverse the irreversible. And of course, as Arendt herself says, no one knew this more than Jesus. Now, this idea of forgiveness is important for everyone at all times, it seems. But it really seems um, topical today, doesn't it? Especially with our recent cancel culture and our online forms of communication. I mean, people say stupid things. And they say things without being able to predict the consequences that might follow from it. Now, what happens is that we're quick to cancel or to stigmatize them, right? But how does this really help anybody? How does it help to foster future discussion and opportunities for learning and growth? I don't know. Maybe we'd be better off to forgive from time to time, and so to allow them to undo their past and not to be wholly characterized by their previous mistakes, intentional or otherwise. That way, we'd ensure that a much richer and inclusive future debate can happen, One that turns transgressors into interlocutors.
you've been listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Top philosophy quotes. Thank you.